If we treated careers more like dating, nobody would settle down so quickly. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Stuart Bourne. Coach Bourne is an athletic trainer and returns to play specialist at the University of St. Thomas. And for longtime listeners of the podcast, you probably recognize his name as I've mentioned him multiple times throughout the years on this podcast because he's had a huge impact on me and my thoughts as a coach. Stu was actually the first person that introduced me to Sean Mishka and Tyler Yerby's movement meetups, which were a total revolutionary kind of thought process at the time. It was when I was very embedded, and we'll talk about this on the podcast, embedded in the triphasic DeFranco model. And I had heard from... Camera Josh, just a little bit of the small side of games, a little bit of the importance of movement, but I'd never been really fully embraced it. And Stu saw what I was doing. And instead of forcing his idea of what he thought could be better in our program, what he thought should be better and what I currently think, he gradually brought these ideas upon. And it's something that I think he's honestly a master of bringing ideas on without challenging people, without forcing his ideas on the people. And he finally got me to see what I say, the red light or the the light and tick the red pill and opened my eyes up to the whole field of what sports performance really could be and the effect we really could have. And I'll forever be thankful for the for the time he took and the 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 energy he put into helping me in this time without any reward. He didn't get any reward for it. And I was probably honestly a jackass starting off, like looking at, he probably looked at a lot of my original programs, like what the fuck are you doing with this program? And instead of just saying that out loud, he took the time to enlighten me in a sense. And it's totally changed my career and totally changed my thought process of what's going in this field. And I'm really excited to have this conversation for you guys to listen into how he himself got to this thought process, how he himself opened up and took the range approach to the field of sports performance is one of coach's favorite books. And it's the where the original quote of this podcast is from. But how did he get to that thought process? How has he stayed open throughout his career? And how has he progressed throughout his career and really expanded his ideas? I, I love his background and his diversity of having that athletic training background, bringing that into the field of sports performance and then kind of melding the two. Because as most people know, there's a, there's usually a kind of a feud between athletic trainers thinking that the strength coaches are the idiots and hurting the athletes. And then you have the strength coach. I think the athletic trainers are idiots for never really training the athlete. And for coach to have the experience of both and understand that the athletic trainers are seeing broken athletes over and over again, and that's why they see the world. And then the sport coach that is only seeing healthy athletes and well-performing athletes, and that's why they see the world. For him to see both of these worlds and kind of blend it together, I think is powerful beyond belief. And I think as you listen to this podcast, you'll really get a ton out of that thought process and seeing the world way that he sees it so thank you guys for listening thank you coach for being on and can't wait to hear you guys' thoughts before we hit the intro music i wanted to introduce to you guys the yokum strength insider the yokum strength insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers our goal with the yokum strength insider is to create better movers to level up your life and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with the Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines. That includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, 
why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Marcus, you know what time it is. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Stu, welcome to podcast. Excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited too. Yeah, we, uh, how long have we worked together now? Four years, three years? Yeah, like three and a half or something like that because you started, I think, uh, in the spring semester. Yeah, spring semester 2018, 2019, right around there. Uh, And when did you when did you get at St. Thomas when my junior year, my senior year? Yeah, it was 2016 because I bet this is uh, year number six now for me. Okay. Yep. And in between the, the athletic training world and the, the sports performance world kind of always had the, the tie for you. And Coach Stu was the one that kind of opened my brain away from the the DeFranco, the, the, the like, which is DeFranco world is great, um, but just kind of opened my brain to different things by bringing us to the movement meetups. And we, we've talked about that in previous podcasts. But that's something I think we can talk about, too, is just your way of I think you do a really nice job of getting your ideas across that you think are correct without kind of forcing your ideas across, which is something I think you need in the field where it's like, Hey, this is right. That is right. This is right. That is right. Whereas you're like, Hey, come to this movement meetup. Hey, I'm not sure if I believe in all this, but you could get something out of that. And you brought us that movement meetup. Yeah. So I I like to uh, respect the other person's journey as much as I can, like with whatever path they're going, if they're going strength and conditioning or going more on like the medical uh, healthcare side of things. I think it's important that you, you that that person kind of has their own path to kind of find their way to get there. And there's going to be people along the way that for sure are going to like help support them and like guide them and influence them um, to a certain degree. But you can't be like force fed somebody else's philosophy. And, and if you are willing to take the force fed somebody else's philosophy, then you're probably not going to be a deep thinker about like what your philosophy is and how to merge the different experiences that you're exposed to and books and education, all those things. And so I think that that's like the more organic way is to just kind of like jump around and find you find your own way. Um, and so like the way I view it is like kind of just like working with athletes, like I'm there to kind of help guide them. But there's lots of choices for you to make like along the way. Yeah. And Coach Carter and I actually talked Carter Schmitz, who's been on the podcast a couple of times now. He he's brought it up multiple times. It's like you do a really nice job of like sliding the idea over. It's like, all right, hey, this would be a good book to read. This would be because I just think about it back in. If right away when I got to St. Thomas, like the ego filled, like you told me, hey, that's fucking stupid. Let's do it this way. I would have just sat there and argued, hey, your way is fucking stupid. And that's where I think it was. I I just thought it was a really cool, like organic process of going to the movement meetups. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Some of this, I don't know about some of it. It's kind of cool. Let's play with some of it. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is what he's talking about. Oh, okay, this is what he's talking about. And it's kind of watching and kind of expanding that rather than sitting there and fighting about it. Yeah. Cause I, I like exactly the way you described it. Like that's how I would have responded to somebody. If somebody else had came to tell me like, no, you're doing it all wrong. You need to do, you need to, you know, coach this way or, you know, um, create your, uh, program or your weight room environment this way. Um, you have to really be open to something like that. And if you've been doing it for a little while, you're probably not going to be as open to those kind of things. And you need to be able to, like I said, be the person that kind of go down, go, uh, chooses which way you're going to go down the path. And there's multiple ways to, to go with it. 
Um, and so I, I kind of think about it that way, like how would I want to be talked to and how would I want to be worked with? And even, even with like our younger um, students and interns, like I want to treat them like with the same equal respect that I would treat anybody else that's been working in the industry for 10 or 20 years, because that's going to want to, that's going to keep them along the path and they're going to want to keep going and exploring and like asking questions um, versus trying to talk down to them, They're, it may turn them away and not want to continue to explore and um, look for uh, other ways to kind of improve and expand um, their experiences. And then like the last thing I'll put on it um, is, you know, having kids uh, makes you kind of realize like, oh, if I'm trying to like force my, my I have two, two boys, five and three, and if I try and force them to do something that they want to do, uh, it ends up being like a really hard battle. And sometimes I have to do that for their own health and safety. But if I want to get them to do something um, that that isn't maybe on the health and safety side of things, I got to be able to like convince them how to do it. And like there's different ways to kind of prod them along the path versus just trying to like force feed them. Yeah. And on the kids note, I just got a little side story. I thought this was really cool. I have a friend that's a teacher and it's like middle school and they were watching squid game, which blows my mind. I'm like, they shouldn't be watching that in the first place. But he's like, they've all been talking about it. And he's been struggling to start the class with them in order or start to class. It's basically like the start of class is chaos. Like trying yeah. to get them to wind down and get them into the mode of learning. Totally. And he said like, he's been trying to tell them, trying to force them. Nothing, nothing worked. And then the other day he's like squid games. All right, I'm going to put all there. So he gave them all numbers. He put them all up on the sheet and he's like, whoever doesn't follow the order gets eliminated from the squid games. And the winner at the end of the day gets a prize. And nice. he said, as soon as he turned it into a game, as soon as the same exact lesson, same exact thing that he wanted to, but as soon as he turned it into a game and giving them kind of the options, giving them kind of choices rather than enforcing them, everybody was quiet. He's like, it was so hard to eliminate anybody because they all were quiet. They all listened. None of them wanted to lose the game. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that's such a great takeaway and a lesson of like how to work with athletes of all ages, uh, patients of all ages and backgrounds of just like finding out like what, is, what is going to get them excited and motivated to like, to work with you. And then you can just, you, you build that buy-in and then you can start taking them down the path that you want to take them, but you got to be able to at least like connect with them on some level. And that's like a great way to find, uh, to connect with them, something they're interested in. And then you can just kind of pull them along the way. And, and I'm biased in this regard, but in every great coach that I brought in the podcast, every coach that I've stolen a ton from, they've had the be open to ideas mindset. They've, they've all brought that up in some regard. They've all talked about the big switch in their life. And it's something that I, it's when I look at a coach that I, I struggle to relate to, mm. that openness is not there. And I'm always interested in where does that openness come from? What is what was the kind of background story to get you to that openness? Because I feel and I'm maybe maybe some people are just more open than others. But I feel like when I started in it, it was try to find the first and it's a lot of it's the unknown. It's like you don't have an answer. So everything is scary. You try to find an answer. Once you find an answer that semi works, you stick that answer and you swear to it because it's giving you something and it's much safer to have a answer than no answer at all. And then that closes your openness to actually having the answer to actually creating the process of having some sort of a better answer. What was that journey like for you to develop that openness? How, how did you go about it? Was it something you had as a kid? Was it something your parents taught you? Was it through like, Oh shit, I, I'm, I thought I had the answers and I don't. Yeah. So I'm going to go like way back with it. Um, before like I knew like what I wanted to do or anything back to my childhood. So um, my parents got divorced when I was really young. And so I didn't have like a father figure in my life and my mom was working late nights. And it, so it was just like me and I have two older brothers that were taking care of me. And so like, as I got older, I realized like, well, this isn't normal. And like, I don't have like that male figure to kind of help lead me along the path to show me like, this is the way you do things or this is one way you could do things. So 
Um, to kind of fast forward through that, but keeping that in like mind, I got older and then I realized like, okay, like some of the male figures I have in my life maybe aren't like the best like models for me. And so I need to try and find like kind of my own way. And so, uh, you know, that came through a lot of like making mistakes and like reading books and just like kind of trying to figure out like what, like how do I be like a good person um, and like enjoy my life. And so that like led me to reading books about like meditation and like happiness and um, like all that kind of stuff, positive thinking. And then eventually like going down the road to um, taking like a, a, a mindfulness based uh, stress reduction course. And like, so I, th I think like the personal side for sure was there for me to like look for that growth and that could be open to like other ideas and opportunities um, from there. So like that kind of set the table for me for on that personal side. And then as far as like um, on the on the career side, the professional side, um, I just got really lucky with like the mentors that I had. So uh, I went to undergrad at uh, Moorhead State and was in their athletic training program. And they had a very structured program and they were very like strict and had a lot of discipline, which was that was important for me. That was good for me to kind of have that um, reinforcement. You know, a, a lot of 18 to 22 year old kids need that in their lives, I think <clears throat> to a, to one degree or another to at least like from a support system standpoint. And since I wasn't like on any sport teams at that time, that became kind of like a good uh, like support system for me. And like I had adults that were like helping keep me accountable in my education um, and in the experiences that I was gaining. And then uh, as I went on to uh, grad school, I got to work with a, a, a great uh, athletic trainer there. He's a mentor of mine. His name is Cole Peterson. And like he kind of helped open up my eyes to like start questioning a lot of the things that I, maybe I was maybe force fed a little bit. But like as a 18, 19 year old, 20 year old kid, um, that's ends up being responsible for, you know, some of the health care of the of, of his peers. Um, that was important for me to then start questioning some of the some of the beliefs <clears throat> and bedrocks that I held close. Um, and so that really helped open up my eyes to be able to start questioning um, myself and some of the things that I would hear from other other professionals and seeing the way other people do things and realizing like, oh, there's there's a ton of different ways for me to treat my athletes. Um, and I can uh, maybe be on a little bit more of the aggressive side of things um, whenever I'm uh, treating uh, athletes from just like kind of a rehab standpoint. And then um, that continued like um, when I was done with grad school, then I continued on um, with my career. And I realized like at that point, it's like, well, I want to continue to like learn and grow my skill set. Like I was really motivated and hungry, like a lot of young professionals are to try and make sure I'm like finding new and better ways to try and treat my athletes and not just be like stuck in the, doing the same thing over and over again. And so um, I just started seeking out like, well, what other courses can I take and what other, you know, uh, books can I read and what other certifications can I get? And uh, I realized like through probably a few years of doing that, like, oh, there's not going to be some like magic bullet for me to find the answer for this. And that it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's just as simple as maybe like what I originally thought, but now I have like a better understanding of the whole process of like rehab and like strength and conditioning and periodization and how to, you know, just work with people in general. And um, so it kind of maybe brought me back a little bit full circle to not make things like too complex and to just try and keep it, keep it basic. And um, to bend, essentially like work from like a principles based approach with whoever I'm working with so that I can have that approach be adaptable to like whether I'm working with an injured athlete or a really high level athlete or a basketball player or a softball player and be able to um, be able to work with all those different athletes from different backgrounds. And you mentioned some of those like early beliefs. 
you remember what some of those were in, back in the day? Oh, like, totally. Like I thought like that there was going to be that I was going to find some certification where like if I'm putting my hands on somebody that that's going to like fix a lot of their pain, that there's going to be some kind of trick for me to like um, adjust their body. Um, and no disrespect to like chiropractors out there, people that are in the manual therapy game. But like I, I, it was I had this mindset of like, oh, like people's hips are out of alignment and they're popping their ribs out or their, their spines out of place. And that like um, I can potentially get it back into place with corrective exercises and, um, manual therapy and, uh, those kind of things. And, and, uh, you know, what I ended up coming to my conclusions based on, you know, talking to other people and reading other things and finding other, uh, other people, um, to, uh, to look up to, um, I, I realized like, that's probably not like what's going on with like their pain and with their body. And there's probably something else that's like, that that's, um, causing, causing their issue and causing their injury that, um, I need to make sure that I'm looking at just like kind of the basics of like, how are they moving just like exercise? Why in their sport? Um, I don't need to put a bunch of emphasis on like the, the table tests that I do with, that I'm doing with an athlete. Like those are helpful for me to diagnose like injuries and kind of lead me down the path, but I don't need to worry about their, you know, two inch box step down. And if their, you know, knee is collapsing or if their hips are uh, collapsing a little bit, like I need to make sure I'm looking at that whole athlete and that whole individual and I can focus on a lot of what they can do and not don't need to focus so much on what they can't do. And then eventually we'll kind of be able to kind of lead them down the path and work on the things that they may, that maybe I think is important for them to work on. Um, but yeah, those were some of the things that I initially had kind of thought like, Oh, I'm going to find this magic thing of like fixing their posture, um, getting them out of pain, just like, you know, with like one session of me, just like rubbing their body or uh, massaging their body or manipulating their body one way or the other. And do those things happen of course, but I don't, they, they just, they, it wasn't uh, satisfying for me. I wasn't finding the answers I was looking for. And you, you mentioned Cole Peterson being the one that like opened your eyes was, was it like an oh shit moment with him of like, was there any fight back to that? Or how did, how did, how did you go about it? Was it the gradual process of like slowly weaning away from that? Or was it like, oh shit, this doesn't work at all. How, how, how'd that process go? No. So, uh, so we worked with uh, cross country and track and field. And so like those types of injuries are like chronic in nature we didn't have a ton of acute injuries and if you had to like evaluate cross-country running injuries and like track and field injuries um they they definitely can be acute but most of them are chronic and it and it's kind of it's a challenge like to figure out like what's wrong with them and like what's causing their pain so you kind of have to be a bit of a detective so it caught it like it was a lot of critical thinking skills um that i hadn't necessarily used as much of and so, so that, that experience of working with those athletes was, um, really valuable for me. Um, but he challenged me to not just like stick to like kind of the norms of what we, what I normally would do with an athlete for like, say rehab and be like, not be as conservative as maybe I, like I, what I thought I should be. Cause I was still, I was a 23 year old kid. And then, so I was working with other athletes that are like, some of them were 22 years old, just a year younger than me. Um, and Cole himself, he was only like a year old, older than me. So we had like a, a good dynamic where like we could relate on a lot of other levels and he didn't, he wasn't, he was, he was definitely aggressive, but he wasn't pushy is the way I would put it. Like, I didn't feel like he was forcing his philosophy down on me, but he questioned me a lot and asked like, well, why do you think that? Or why do we do that? Why do we do it this way? And so that was really helpful for me to, to then kind of question myself. It gave me permission to question myself and like what I'd learned up to that point. And so not just necessarily throw it all away, still using that as like, kind of like my, kind of my safety net, my, somewhat of my fundamentals, but then be able to kind of branch out from there and try things that I would have like been too afraid to try prior to. Yeah. And I think that questioning part is once you're able to get into that questioning mode, a lot of what you talk about, like 
either gets thrown out the window or it's like, all right, I got to dive way deeper into this because I'm like, I'm asking myself these questions or Stu's asking me these questions and I have no idea like what the answer is. So maybe it's, if I, if I can't answer that own question, it, what I have is probably not the answer to that athlete's problems. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of it goes back to like kind of just peeling away um, your assumptions about whether it's a certain exercise, a certain injury, a certain sport, certain athlete, and just trying to peel away those assumptions. Like, well, why do I think that? And then the next layer, well, why do I think that? And as you continue to answer that, you just kind of peel it away till you get to like the root of like what it is, like is your philosophy and like how you approach training, rehab, um, treatment, manual therapy, any of those things. Like, why do I think those things? What evidence do I have to support that? Why? And then I can start maybe building it back up from there. And maybe I am, maybe you are right, or maybe you're really close to being right in quotation marks about like what your, um, treatment philosophy, all that stuff is, but it really helps you like kind of clearly define like, okay, this is how I'm going to approach working with athletes or patients. And then it should, and if you have a good base of, uh, principles to work from, they should be able to, uh, adapt to lots of different situations rather than if you, if you have maybe just like a system that you're working from, then you're probably, then you're going to be more rigid and you're trying to get the athlete or your patient to fit into your system rather than the other way around. And you mentioned your, your childhood background. They never really said what got you or kind of drew you to the athletic training field in the first place. Well, what was that? Uh, so that's pretty funny. We, it was like, uh, in middle school, uh, it was in like our science class. I can't remember which one. It was like a life science class or something like that. But the, for, for some reason we were doing, like, we had to give like a, a talk to our class, um, about like what job we might be interested in want to do. And at middle school, like I had never thought about anything other than just like, I just want to play basketball. Like that was all I really thought about. Right. And so, um, I, I didn't think about what job do I want to do or, uh, or anything like that. So I was, I was struggling with it. And the, my teacher just told me, she was like, well, why don't you look at athletic training? Like, I think that would be something you'd be interested in. And I don't know if she knew what athletic training was. I think maybe I, a part of me think about it now. I'm like, maybe she thought that like, that was just like training athletes, like being a yeah. coach. But I specifically looked into athletic training and I know that's what I initially thought of it whenever I heard that. Uh, that, that job title was like, Oh, training athletes, like sweet. Like I would, I, I would, I could think I could do that. Um, even though I wasn't like a big, like weight room guy or meathead by any means, like we didn't have a strength coach at my school, you know, none of that. But uh, so anyways, I, I researched it and I was just kind of like, Oh, that sounds like a cool job. Like it's not what I thought it was, but like treating injuries and, um, you know, being able to help out that, those, those athletes and being like, Oh yeah, that's the guy that runs out on the field when, you know, a football player gets hurt. I'm like, Oh, okay. I think that'd be kind of cool. And um, at the time I didn't think about it like as explicitly as I'm going to explain it now, but I think what drew me to it was when I was in like, uh, when I was a young kid, like I had asthma and like would get, um, sick, sick a lot. Sometimes it was, uh, kind of self-induced cause I was like, I don't want to go to school. Like I was anxious, uh, like in, in elementary school. Um, and so, uh, healthcare was just kind of this like weird thing to me that was just like kind of scary. And like, you, you don't really know what's going on with your body. And like, it was all these unknowns. Um, I've, I fractured my tibia when I was in third grade and it was like a terrible, like uh, fracture that and I had to wear like a full leg cast for a couple months. And then, uh, was in like, just like the knee cast for another like month after that. And, um, then I know like a year later I had a Jones fracture in my foot from like just playing basketball. I like thought I just sprained my ankle and I was like, Oh no, you broke your bone again. And it was like less than a year later. And then like two years later I broke a bone in my wrist. And so like for a while there, like the doctors and my mom were worried, like, well, does he have like brittle bones or something? He keeps breaking bones and all this stuff. But like, like that was all good. Um, 
but I had this like kind of early background of like all these injuries and kind of in just like not like bad illnesses, but just like not really having a full understanding of my body. And I think that that was definitely appealing to me is to like knowledge is power and like makes it like kind of less like scary. And so I started learning like, oh, our bodies are really resilient. Like, you know, we, we stress ourselves and we, you know, we get better and we get stronger. And so like that was like appealing to me is to, to just learn like about our bodies. So then it's not this like kind of scary thing of like when you get hurt or you get sick. Like it was very reassuring to be like, oh, like I'll be fine. Like I just got have a cold or like I sprained my ankle. Like like I'll be okay. Like I just need to do X, Y, and Z. I don't need to baby it or anything like that. Like I'll be good. So that was probably that that was definitely like probably involved with like my idea of like oh like athletic training sounds cool. And so from middle school on, I never really gave it like much thought after that. Like it was like an easy answer for me. Like as I got older in high school and like adults started asking like, well, what are you going to go study or what are you going to do? It was very easy for me to get them off of me by just saying like, oh, I'm going to go do an athletic training. And, um, so that, so I didn't give it a whole lot, a lot of thought after that. Um, and then when I went to college, my first year of college was actually at Mabel state university. Cause I wanted to play basketball so bad. And that was like the only school that would let me play basketball for them. So I, I got to play basketball there and kind of live out, you know, my dream of playing college basketball. But then quickly during that year, like I started having like a lot of um, like, I don't know, like worries about the future and not being as satisfied with like the basketball side of things. It wasn't as fulfilling as it once was for me. And so then I would like quickly realize like, oh, I need to go do athletic training. I need to start like planning for my future um, so I can get ready for a job and all those kind of things and being an adult. And uh, so then that's when I probably made the transfer over to uh, Moorhead State. And then how long were you in school for athletic training? So for four years. So I did undergrad for five. I did, I did one year because uh, the athletic training program at Moorhead, you had to uh, uh, do your freshman year, your first year and apply to get in. And then it was three years. So that was kind of, you know, like at the initially I was just like, oh, man, I'm going to like have to do five years instead of four. Um, but it was totally worth it. I was really happy that I did that. I probably needed that extra time to kind of mature and grow and be ready to be an adult out in the real world. And then, and I'm interested, I'm just wondering, cause you have that four years athletic training and how long were you an athletic trainer before you switched over into the strength role? So athletic training now is going into like, you have to get a master's to be certified. But back then, uh, dating myself a little bit, you you could you would graduate with your undergrad in athletic training. Then you could sit for your the, uh, BOC board of certification exam and pass it and you'd be a professional at 22 years old. Um, and so, so I got mine, it would have been 23. And so I worked two years uh, as a grad assistant at the university of Minnesota. Um, as I mentioned previously uh, with the track and field teams there, and then, uh, two more years at a local high school in the area and then two more years at another college. So I did six years as an athletic trainer, uh, and then did the last five as a strength coach. And then now back on the athletic training side of things. And that, that's, I was just wondering that, that you had that six year buildup as an AT. Yeah. What caused that switch? I, I just, I love the background. So I, th I just think it's funny, like knowing you now. Yeah. Um, and then just thinking about a lot of the AT world um, where it is, it seems, and it's not all, but it seems like there's a lot of fragileness. Like that's where the, the, mm. the thought process goes. It's, mm -hmm. there's, there's fragile, there's things wrong with people. And like when I talk to you, it's, it's very, it's like the anti-fragile, like mm -hmm. body's resilient. Like you mentioned, body's adaptable. How did, how did you make that switch? And I'm assuming you did that in the six years of AT and you were just treating the AT world differently as well. But how did you make that switch? And when did you decide to take a step out of the AT world and go into sports performance world? And why? Like, what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah. So I, um, this goes back to uh, at least initially when I was working as a GA um, with the Gophers. We had a great strength coach with the track and field team. Her name was Jamia Jackson. And so she was, I had up to that point, I had never worked with a strength coach. These are either as an athlete in my like high school days, my one year playing college ball 
or at Moorhead State, they didn't have a strength coach whenever I was there. Division two school didn't have a strength coach. Um, and so like it wasn't really on my mind a ton then, but like rehab definitely was. And the, those two worlds, I don't see as like being all that different from each other as far as if we go back to like kind of stripping it down to the principles approach, like how, how it looks may look very different, but the principles I think are, should be very similar um, in, in the approach. And so um, working with uh, Jamia with the Gophers, she, that was great because she was just so easy to work with. And prior to that, like I'd probably been brainwashed a little bit by previous athletic trainers about like, you know, you got to watch out for the strength coaches, like they'll go rogue and they'll hurt your athletes. And like, you, you know, that the weight room is, was kind of like, oh, that's a place where athletes will get hurt um, was kind of like the, the seed that was planted for uh, athletic trainers that I was working with. And so um, working with her was just a great experience because she was really adaptable. And like, if we told her like, Hey, this athlete's backs like bothering them, this thrower's backs bothering them with like back squats, like what else can we do? And she was like, Oh, no problem. Like we'll do X, Y, and Z. Like we can front squat them. We can trap our deadlift. Like we can do different things. And I was just like, great. Like, this is so easy. I just go talk to you and you're going to fix it. Like you're going to change whatever it is that we're doing. And like, it's not some like battle. Like what I would hear about is like, then like a lot, some athletic trainers and string coaches just kind of butting heads and, you know, not really probably listening to each other and feeling like one, they both have the right answer here. And so, so that was really, um, a nice experience for me. And then, um, from what I talked about previously about uh, working with Cole Peterson and just kind of questioning assumptions that kind of helped me question a lot of the assumptions of kind of the athletic training kind of, um, maybe, uh, fear or aversion to like the weight room and, and to lifting weights. And so, uh, I feel like that experience with Jamia and question myself really helped that. Uh, but athletic trainers, like it's tough because the athletic trainers and physical therapists, it's all like kind of risk mitigation, right? Like somebody comes to you broken and you don't want to break them further, right. Or build them back up and then be the one that like hurts them in like rehab or something like that, like that your job is to like make sure that they're healthy. And so you're constantly getting athletes that are like hurt and broken and need to be repaired. So then that's kind of what their world just becomes is just that I feel like. And so like getting, that's why it's super important, like to make sure you get out of like your, the clinic or the athletic training room and go out to practice and watch like your athletes move around and see like how resilient they are and like see, and just see how like powerful and graceful and strong, all those great things that uh, qualities that they possess and and getting to talk to other strength coaches and sport coaches i think is super helpful too um so that you kind of change your mindset a little bit on it and um and then realize like oh yeah like this isn't that like not every athlete's going to get hurt just because they put a bar on their back or not every athlete's going to get hurt because you're running you know sprints or you're playing games and you're having them move in all these various ways and so um that, 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 that was probably like the impetus for it to, for me to kind of start changing my mindset a little bit with it. Yeah. I, I really like that point. Like if all you're seeing is broken athletes, it's like, no one it's like, no wonder you think like athletes are breakable and fragile. And this, I think it's the same way. The other way it's like you have a sport coach or even a strength coach is kind of just like put the injured guys over there and all you're seeing is healthy athletes. It's mm-hmm. like more volume, more do this, more that until they're hurt. And then they disappear from your eyesight. So it's both worlds of like seeing it, like seeing both sides of it. I think that's a re- really, really good point of whatever you're seeing is, is that's just going to create your world and how you start to program and how you start to think about what's happening and who the bad guy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like, you know, one of the, um, one of the key tenets for athletic training is uh, injury prevention. Like that's one of our like areas of like supposed to be like experts in and study. And I don't think that uh, a lot of resources are poured into that. At least like it wasn't uh, as much of an emphasis for me in my like undergrad training. And, uh, 
I don't remember it like seeing a lot of like um, courses or certifications or um, educational resources on the injury prevention side of things. So that's probably what gravitated me towards like strength and conditioning because I, I I'd gotten to that point where I was just like, well, I want to like have more of an impact like than after the fact. Like I love helping athletes whenever they're hurt and like they find themselves in a spot that like they didn't plan on being in and di- don't want to be in. And I help I love helping them get out of that hole and get back to like doing the thing that they love. And it's like it's very like satisfying for me to see that journey um, from when they're really low to then getting back to being hopefully at a higher level um, than they were before. And so that's super enjoyable. But I was also just thinking like, well, I want to have also like that impact to like maybe prevent that from happening and keep them healthy, um, healthy or healthier and reduce that risk of them ending up in an athletic training room. And I don't, you can, obviously you can't eliminate that, but that was kind of my desire then to kind of make, start ma- making that transition over to like strength and conditioning side of things. Like anytime like a team at, like would ask me like as an athletic trainer, like, Hey, can you do like our warm up for us? I was like, great. Like I saw that as like an opportunity to try and like build in some of the things that I think are going to be really important for the, the team and those athletes to hopefully keep them healthy and not coming in to see me after the fact. Yeah. And approaching the sports performance world now from the AT background, you already have a much different background than most sport coaches. You already can kind of see the world a different way and you're just approaching a different perspective. But what were those early years like of being a sports, like the the strength coach and in that sector compared to what it is now? Because like being a strength coach and doing that is different than being like the the play-based uh emergence-based guy that you are now so like what was that kind of journey like because it's almost like two separate hills to climb in that way like what was the first early years of your strength world like and how did you adapt that and how did you find out there's even more now you're opening yourself up to a totally different world and then you're going to do it again Mm -hmm. the 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 first thing that was the hardest for me was like the imposter syndrome because i did not feel like i was ready like to be a strength coach at that time. Like I I felt like I had some of the knowledge, but I didn't know how to like um, work with a large group of athletes, right? Like as an athletic trainer, you're you're used to just working like one-on-one or maybe like a small group of athletes because you're just working with those that get injured. Um, But then making that switch of like, I had that desire of like, oh, I want to keep them healthy and like reduce the amount that they're going to have to see their athletic trainer, get surgeries or do all those things. But then how to communicate that to like a large group of athletes was really tough for me because like I'm I'm totally like an introverted person. I'm not the one that wants to like have like the spotlight shown on them. And so realizing like, okay, how do I do this? That's an authentic way for me to work with these athletes. And so I I very much followed in the footsteps of like kind of like the people that had had the job before me of like just trying to make sure like, oh, I, I want to build relationships with these athletes, but I didn't want to like deviate too much from like what the athletes had like known and had done. Like I had to have some uh, like, you know, uh, like uncomfortable conversations with like our basketball coaches like, oh, we we always did like cleans. We always hand clean. And I was like, I did not feel comfortable coaching like, uh, you know, 20 guys on the hand clean all at the same time. So I was just like, we're not doing that. Right. And so like, those are, those are some of the more practical things that I just didn't feel as comfortable with. Um, and then as I, as I built the relationships with the athletes and the coaches, which is hard to build like a meaningful relationship with like 20 individuals at once. Right. It's much easier. As I said, like whenever you're doing that one-on-one with an athlete to get to know them and build that relationship and build the trust. So it took me probably like a good, like year, year and a half of like building the relationships with uh, teams with coaches going out to practices, making sure that they could see me like outside of the weight room where that, then I, I felt more comfortable to like be myself. And then as I started learning more, um, I mean, you mentioned like the, uh, emergence, like kind of the play based side of things. Um, I learned 
I had a little bit of exposure to that because I was like really trying to look up, like find like, all right, how, how do I train agility? Like I knew how to like, well, if we, you know, if we want to get strong, we just lift heavier weights. If we want to get fast, we try and sprint them more. Um, if we want to get more powerful, you know, we, we jump in various ways. Um, and those are obviously really simplified versions of it, but easy enough to like kind of explain and apply. But agility was like this weird thing where I was just like, I don't know like how to like really implement that. Because even as an athletic trainer, when I'd be doing like late stages of rehab, like I just resorted to like kind of cone drills that I thought like looked kind of cool and would get them to change directions in various ways. And, um, and sometimes there'd maybe be some reaction in it. Maybe I'd include a ball in it and stuff, but it was, it, it wasn't as well thought out. And then all of a sudden it would just kind of be like, all right, well, like here, here's like soccer practice. Like, well, keep, I'm going to hold my breath and cross my fingers that you don't get hurt out there right now as I send you back out there or, you know, same thing for basketball or football or whatever. And so, um, as I learned more from, um, looking up how to, you know, what does agility mean? Like, what is the definition? Like it doesn't, obviously it doesn't have like that equation that like speed and power and strength and, uh, work, all, all those things do. And so like, it made me realize like, this is way more complex. Um, the response to a stimulus was like, okay, that, like that really kind of solidifies it for me. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's some movement that's in a response to a stimulus. It doesn't even have to necessarily be a change in direction, but it's just a, a change in maybe movement in a response to a stimulus like that, like kind of hit home for me, like, okay, I need to make sure I have some sort of stimulus involved with my athletes. And then, um, from there, then it just became like more, maybe it just like general stimulus of like, Hey, we're going to play rock, paper, scissors to decide like which way we're going to run today. Or like maybe, you know, cutting and change directions, or we're just going to like mirror our partner that's in front of us. And, um, we're going to do, you know, various things like that. And then, um, getting to go to some of the more of those movement meetups that you mentioned and, uh, getting to go to, uh, Sean Mishka's, uh, conferences, um, sport movement conferences, those that, then it just kind of like blew the doors wide open. And it was just like, okay, this is the way that I need to be like working with my athletes. Um, in, in some regards, obviously it doesn't, I like, I didn't just like completely throw everything out that I've been previously doing, but that just kind of opened me up to like, all right, we have plenty of time. If we had an hour with, with our teams, like I can dedicate 10 to 20 minutes of getting them to move in different ways and getting them to respond to some, you know, stimulus, whether it's sports specific or more general and get them to have a little fun and engagement and enjoyment. And then we can go in the weight room and start, you know, getting, getting after our like more traditional work. And for the people that aren't super familiar, can you talk about your principles of agility? I think that'd be a cool like rabbit hole to dive down with you since you went down that journey, like what, what do you see agility as and how is it so much different than just cutting and how are you going about training that? Cause I think that's something that's super important to something you and I kind of talk about and program about a lot. If you look at like a lot of what we do, it's almost like 80%, 70% of our time when we are doing stuff was Mm -hmm. doing stuff like that. And then, then we go lift and a little bit different than I think what a lot of programs is where it's like, you're going to do a skips and then you're going to run down into the weight room. Can you dive into what agility is to you and how you kind of go about branching out and how the perception part is so important? Yeah. So, um, as I previously mentioned, like the, like for me, the principle is like, there's gotta be a stimulus, right? There's gotta be something that we're reacting to and responding to and that we're getting like our, that's getting our attention and our focus. So many times coming from the athletic training background is like, we wanted, we tried to get our athletes to like focus like on their body and on their, the, the joint or their muscle or whatever it is that the, the task, uh, not even the task, but just like what their body was doing. And so this was like a, a you know, a complete like paradigm shift of like, we want to get their minds out of that. We don't want them to focus so much on their body. And that totally made sense to me because we're like, you're not going to do that in your sport, whatever sport you're playing. You're not going to think about how is your body moving? 
you're just going to try and execute the task and you're going to be thinking about maybe the, like one or two steps ahead of like whatever strategy that you're, you're imposing um, as a team. And so, so that, so then I just kind of took that and was like, all right, I need to apply that to our athletes for like our warmups. That was like the easiest thing to do. And in my mind is like, that's where we can start to do some of these things. And, um, that's where we can get the athletes more engaged and involved in, in like the workouts. And so, um, I just started thinking, I'm like, all right, how, what are different ways I can get them to respond to a stimulus? <clears throat> and a lot of times it was like, for better or worse, it would end up being like a stimulus of, of like just a, a one, like a coach or, a, or one of our student interns, like just like, you know, clapping their hands or throwing a ball or pointing in different directions to get them to respond, which um, I think, it, you know, it, it's a fine. If that's where you're going to start, that's great. And like, that's at least a starting point. But then I knew like, all right, well, like that's helpful and that, that can be fun and engaging, but we want to continue down that path of making it as, you know, if it can be specific to their sport, great. Not trying to turn you like a strength coach or an athletic trainer into a sport coach, but giving them those opportunities that they may not get as much in a practice and um, allowing them to explore their movement a little bit more in a, in a, in a sport specific way, I think was kind of like where my mind kind of goes down that path. So thinking of it, if, if you will, kind of like a continuum of, all right, we're going to start with like kind of the general stuff where you're just responding to uh, a novel stimulus, a sound, a, a visual cue, and then going continue to go down that path where then it's like, all right, like I'm, I'm just creating the environment and I'm stepping out of it. And then I'm letting the athletes kind of figure it out. And then if they need, if they need some guidance, then I'm there to help guide them. If, uh, if things are maybe getting a little too like, uh, chaotic or dicey, then I can try and like rein them in and kind of uh, give some uh, more structure to it. Um, and for, for our athletes, <clears throat> for better or worse, a lot of my default ended up being like, well, they play enough of their sport sometimes. So that I would just be like, well, let's just do something completely different. Like that's going to get you moving in completely different ways that I think is still going to be helpful or beneficial for you to respond to these stimuli. Even if you're not like, say, uh, uh say you're a soccer player and like everything you do is with your feet. Like sometimes it's like, well, let's just play ultimate frisbee for like a warm up, and they're, they're going to move in different ways. They're going to have to use different skill sets that they don't normally use that I think are, can still be valuable and important that aren't necessarily going to interfere, quote unquote, like with their skill and with their sport in general. Um, and so I, I, that's what I really enjoy doing um, is just like creating that environment and then being able to step out of it. The more I had to talk, the more I had to coach like a, a, a drill or um, a movement scenario the worse I thought like it went and the, the the worse I felt about it and like the more frustrated I felt like throughout it if I was having to keep if I had to keep reinforcing like no do it this way or use this or use that then I don't think it went very well now if I just like sometimes on the fly you know you're just kind of changing things up and just tweaking it and like that that was fine but uh, the more I can just kind of like remove myself from the scenario and just kind of give some guidance or some advice or just say like, hey, try this next time or let's tweak this, uh, the much, much better it went for everybody, I feel like. Yeah. And as a little side story. So the new gym that I'm at is um, it's a, there's a soccer field. So like half the fields, I usually rent it out to soccer teams and there's two different soccer teams and the coach, they got to be four to seven years old like they're young young uh and there's one soccer coach that sits there and before he gets there he gets there 20 minutes early every single time sets up all these drills like these cone drills these ladder drills and every time his kids come it's screaming at him and he is so angry and he's so frustrated and none of the kids are listening and i the other day he said something like this isn't recess like get it and it's oh, no. and it's not he didn't seem like a bad guy like he talks to all of them he has a good conversation but when it comes to after coaching you can tell so frustrated his face is red the entire time and the kids aren't listening and there's even one point where 
there's three teams. One of the teams, instead of watching their practice, was watching us play like this random <laughs> ultimate game. I was like, oh boy, he's going to be pissed about that. But he said, it's not recess. And then there's another team, same age of kids. The coach shows up like four minutes before, puts a couple balls out and he gives them two like small side of games. Doesn't say a word the entire time. And, and it's just laughs, smiles. They're playing the game. They're doing things. He'll make some adjustments. He'll like, all right, let's do 3v3. Let's do 2v2. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And it's just funny watching that. It's like that that's the younger kid version of it. But it's like that. It's almost like super obvious if you're just watching like what a kid's. What are kids drawn to? How are like how much work is being done in the other section? And the other coach had all good intentions. Like he, I mean, he got there so early to set up all these drills and he's wanting to do all of this. But the work that's actually being done, the frustration level there, the focus, the intent, which I think talk about focus intense, like two of my biggest things in training. Like if you can have the most perfect program, but if focus and intent isn't there, it doesn't nobody gives a shit. It doesn't matter. And the best way to give them focus and intent is give them a goal and tell them to go do it. And that's what I think you do a really nice job of with your drills and the games that you guys play is get an athlete that wants to compete or even even a general population person, like they all want to play. They want it like they're drawn to that and the amount of work you can get done. Cause that's where it's like you have the fight back from the meathead strength coach. It's like yeah, but we want this. Yeah, but it's like we're getting all of that done. The amount of volume, the amount of intensity, the amount of focus that you get done in a game like that is so much higher if you just watch it, like just watching both those sessions back to back. Yeah, I think that's a great point you made of just like kind of the two like juxtapositions of like the approaches there. And like the way I think about it is like the the first guy that you described that's coming in early and setting up all those cones. Like he's doing all of his work, like at that session, you know, you know, like a little bit prior to, but then like at the session, he's trying to do like all of his work. Then the guy that, uh, the the second guy that you mentioned, well, that's just kind of rolling the balls out there and setting it up. Like now like a lot of people would look at that and just be like, well, that guy's, you know, lazy or he's not really coaching them. You know, the kids aren't getting their money's worth, whatever. But the way that I approach it, not sure. I can't speak for the, the, uh, the coach that you mentioned, but the way I approach it is, like that's a lot of like legwork to build up to it. Like you got to think about like, all right, well, this is how we're going to do it. Like this is the environment we're going to set up. And this is how like I think it's going to look in my mind. And you try to anticipate some of the problems that you're maybe going to run into. And then and then you once you get out there, then if you've done if you've done a, a decent job of kind of that, that planning process and like kind of thinking through like, what's the goal? Why am I doing this? What are we hoping to get out of it? And then set it up in a way that the environment creates the 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 movements the actions that you want from your athlete, um, then, then you're, then you're achieving your goal and you're putting in all the work initially. And then you can just kind of sit back and just kind of watch it unfold with, and then with some minimal guidance and, and adjustments on the fly. But yeah, one is way more frustrating in the moment because you probably didn't put it as much like thought into it leading up to it. And then the other, it's like, you gotta, it's really like intensive kind of thought work of figuring out like, how am I going to set this up? And then still being like, present and thoughtful and in the moment to be able to change it up. If you don't like what you're seeing, if it's not show, if, if what you had in your mind isn't playing out, then you got to be able to respond to it and then adjust and change it as, as it unfolds. And, uh, yeah, the, the first way is I think that's most coaches kind of go down that path. And, um, I think most of them aren't going to change until they get like really frustrated and fed up with it at a certain point. And they're just like unsatisfied. Like that's not enjoyable for me. That wasn't enjoyable for the kids. Like, and, and it's, but it's very easy to just kind of point the finger at the kids, right. Mm-hmm. Um, of all ages, whether they're four-year-olds or, you know, 24-year-olds to just be able to blame them and just say, well, they didn't want it enough. They're not focused. They're not attention there. It's like, no, if they, if they're talking and they're having a good time and they're like laughing and they have tons of energy, you just have to figure out how do I channel that energy 
into whatever it is that we're trying to get done that day. If you try and squash it, then you're you're probably screwing up two times with them. Right? Yeah. You're, you're taking away from them. So when Zwayful had a really good point about this the other day, he was talking about on um, Joel's podcast, he said something like, kids aren't lazy. It's like, watch them play video games. He's yeah, like, they'll yeah. do it for 12 hours a day and just grind the monotonous, like doing it over and over. And he's like, they have the energy, they have the will, they have the like focus and intent. Watch them do something like that. Like, if you can't channel that, if you can't grab it, like that's your fault as a coach. Cause they have it. Like you can see it, it's witness. And like, not to say like everybody like, yeah, sure. There's some shit, like there's some shitheads out there. Yeah. yeah like I, and there's some great athletes that are shitheads. Sometimes I've been a shithead before. Like mm-hmm. you have, you all have those days you have that, but to continually blame it on the athletes when you're seeing that they have the focus, they have the intent in them, they have the drive in something that they value. Mm-hmm. And it's your fault as a coach that you're not making them value. You're not having them understand that in the moment of this is valuable, this is important, this could be fun. Yeah, well, the the story that you uh, brought up previously about the uh, middle school teacher, like he could just blame all the kids for like being like, you know, being crazy and just not being focused. But instead, he, he created a game for them to, to buy into what he wanted that, to get done that day. And so, like, I think that that's that's just a lesson that like we can all use and like definitely reminders. Like there's days where I, I sometimes I start catching myself like I'm blaming the athlete for like low energy or whatever. But uh, that's then I remind myself like, no, like I got to create the environment for them. Right. Like when you're if you're doing 6 a.m. workouts with athletes, you know, 18, 19 year old kids, they don't want to be up that early doing, doing a lift and coming in and not at least of all, not even get to do their sport. Right. But they're getting up at 6am to come and work out with you. Like I need to create the environment that's going to bring some energy for them and get them excited to be there and have fun and start laughing and enjoying what they're doing before I can expect them to um, push the like measurables in the, the, in the weight room. And one point of that out, you, you mentioned before, you talked about the, the soccer girls where it's all or guys working with the feet and you, you have them catch up, uh, play frisbee, use their hands. And you talk about different movement options and different movements that you're seeing and how they're able to solve a different problem. Like it, now it's a floating instead of on the ground, it's in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that important? Why do you value that? Like if, if a coach is watching and they're like, well, why, why is that movement option? Why is that movement important if they're not having it on the field or in that sense? Like why, why do you value that? So from like, just like my personal belief, I just think it's important for us to be able to move in like a variety of ways. Like if we can move a certain way, we should probably be able to access it every once in a while. Doesn't mean it needs to be like the focus of every one of like our workouts. Like, um, you know, obviously I'm not going to do like, um, have soccer players doing a bunch of like upper body focus, like whether it's drills or exercises, um, in the weight room. But I do think it's still valuable to make sure we're developing like the whole athlete and the whole person. And getting them just to be able to do something that's maybe just like a little different. It's not, it's, it's novel. So it gets them excited to want to come back. And so we're looking at kind of like the long game rather than just like short term, like, sure, we could just like time forties and do cone drills and they probably get faster in those things. But I also don't believe that that stuff's necessarily going to transfer directly to their sport because there's so many other factors that are going on in their sport that influence like their, their level of motivation for that day and just like how they're feeling and what their skills are going to look like. And so I think it's, I I think playing more of the long game of just like, Hey, we're going to play ultimate Frisbee today because it's something that's going to be different, fun, get you competitive. And you're then, and then you're going to hopefully be in like a, a more positive, uh, frame of mind 
for that for that workout that we're going to do where we maybe we are going to like time some sprints or maybe we are going to push the um the weight in the weight room a little bit so that you'll be uh hopefully working from like a more positive frame of mind and then uh if we want to go to like actually the research side of things side of things that i know that maybe won't make make a big difference in a coach's mind but there's been studies like uh with Cirque du Soleil like they train like so much Right. Uh, and like, uh, depending on what their um, specific like skill set is, they're training that constantly throughout the week and it's their job and they're getting paid to do this. And so they're, they're just training themselves so hard and they, they suffer so many types of overuse injuries, acute injuries um, in their performances. And so researchers actually looked at it and they actually had um, the, the performers learn a different performer's routine that had nothing to do with their routine. So it was like completely unrelated. So they, so they spent dedicated training time learning another performer's routine that was completely different from their own. And then they found that that actually reduced their rate of injuries prior to, as far as like all the different like training and rehab and methods that they, that they used uh, previously. And so I think that's a lesson that we can take away. It's like, yes, let, you know, we need to uh, make sure that we're practicing a ton for, you know, football or basketball or soccer or hockey, and that they're spending a lot of time learning those skills and working on it. But there's something to be said if we're just trying to keep our athletes healthy of getting them to train doing something completely different. Now the weight room definitely can be one of those things that can, it's a good cross training, um, uh, tool for us to use, but it's not the only tool for us to use. And so that's where getting them to move in different ways that aren't even related to their sport is going to end up having that, that anti-fragile effect that is going to hopefully keep them healthier and happier and be able to train for longer. So it's again, it's kind of looking at that long game rather than the short-term gains. Yeah. And I, I think that's the biggest point that I wanted to talk about from that is the long-term games. Cause I think that's so important. And I just, from my personal background, it's when you're in the moment, when you're in that athletic career, it's like, Oh shit, like I gotta have it now. I gotta have it now. And then you start to think that every year and you start to do short-term games consistently. And you, you have, if you look at it, you have four years, like, that is so long. How much you can change your body, how much you can change your athletic potential in four years is incredible. But what most athletes do is they, they stress and they're like, okay, short-term game, short-term game, short-term game. And it's continually that cycle and process of like, all right, big spike injury or like feel like crap or just not doing it, burn myself out, drop. And you're, you're ebbing and flowing from like a higher peak, but you're never really like long-term gaming it, you know, long-term game. And as soon as I myself took myself out of that and started doing the long-term game of my own training. So to do some stuff that before I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Like go squat some weight. Yeah. Everything went up. I started to feel way better. I moved. I mean, my movement now compared to then is it's not even close and I move way better and all of the weights are similar. It's all like the non-linear approach to athletic performance for me personally. And with a lot of the athletes that I work with has been a game changer for me because you're approaching it in long-term sense. And it's, what I think a lot of athletes worry about is like, you're going to lose, like you're going to lose that barbell is squat. You're going to, and for me, that has not been my experience. If you're sprinkling it in, if you're playing that long-term game, like you every, not everything, but like it's going to all slowly progress rather than a huge spike in one aspect and all these other aspects are staying down here. Mm -hmm. And then that's going to lead to that one part that peaks for you to drop eventually. And then you're, you're back to square one rather than playing a long-term game of I'm enjoying this. I'm doing things that I haven't done before. I'm learning different movements and I'm lifting weights and I'm sprinting and I'm doing these aspects and everything kind of is in the quirkiest with like the holistic method of kind of growing as an athlete. Yeah. And I think that like uh, for sure athletes have that worry and that fear and they think that, that, you know, they'll see, you know, whatever, you know, training stuff that's on social media or they've just been taught a lot of times by 
coaches or their parents reinforce like, no, this is, this is what training is. And this is the way you should be doing it. Right. Where you're just like, you're constantly like working and measuring and trying to beat those things, whether it's in the weight room or uh, sprinting out on the field or your biometrics, all those kind of things that you're just trying to like game up, game up on and gamify a little bit, which all those things can be good and they can be very useful um, when applied appropriately. But that uh, my, my belief is that you're, you're sacrificing the long-term whenever you do those things. And uh, so uh, David Epstein wrote a book range. And so he talks about uh, kind of his process uh, or not his process, but like the idea of like being inefficient is actually helpful for the long term, um, and I think Ryan Holiday's talked about this too. And the way like he writes his books, like he like hand writes like all of his note cards and everything. And it's not because uh, it, it's you know gonna be the best way necessarily. He could probably write books faster if he like typed it all up and everything was like digital. But he hand writes everything. And he said like that it's in that kind of inefficient process that you kind of find some of the gold that you would miss otherwise. And so you, it's it's a, it's okay to uh, allow yourself to be quote unquote inefficient for for at times. So that you can explore these different areas and these different um, paths. And just like the Cirque du Soleil um, example that I gave, like that's not the most efficient use of one's time is to learn somebody else's routine. Uh, but if we're looking at what's our goal, say a year from now or two years from now, then it's going to be that, that uh, to me, that just is common sense. Then like, yes, like, well, let's spend some time doing some of these other things. That's going to get you to a much higher place a year or two from now. Now, if, if our main concern is like, hey, it's just this week, then maybe we don't do all those things if we're worried about just this week. Um, but you can't like if, you, if every week is just this week, yeah. then you're losing so much in the long term. And have you and I'm thinking about this now, have you like what's the best way to go about convincing the athlete of that or just working like something that I've found is like showing them videos from like I really like doing like a test, a test and quotations. It's an exercise. Uh, the first day or whatever. And then six months later, without really doing that, maybe sprinkling that exercise in, maybe it's a pistol squat day one, mm-hmm. doing that, recording it mm-hmm. and then sprinkle it in, but never like, it's never like a 12 week program. And then six months later, show them that same pistol squat and show them how much they've grown. That's something that I found really kind of cool is like, Hey, we never swore by this. We never, but look at how much, like you didn't even think about this. And now you're doing, you weren't even able to get one. And now you're doing five with like 20 pound dumbbells. What's, have you thought of like different ways of doing that? Cause that's something that I've been thinking about. How do you, how do you get that buy-in for that long-term growth rather than a lot of the athletes is, I mean, it's, you say it as a joke, we think it as a joke, but that's, that's a lot of athletes mindset. It was my mindset for sure. It's like this week, this week, mm-hmm. this week. And then but if it's like, fuck dude, like you wasted 52 weeks, like yep. doing that. So have you thought about that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about changing somebody's mind, right? Yeah. Like, that's like the one of the hardest things to do, if not the hardest thing to do is to change somebody's mind. And so, you know, tell, you know, you can tell them, you could cite, you know, the Cirque du Soleil research article, you could show them the articles, you could give them to, you know, for them to read. But a lot of times that's not going to change their minds a whole lot. Like stories are really good at changing people's minds. So if you have ex- previous examples of like, oh, this is like what I did with this athlete previously that, and like, this is the success that they had. And like, it's that, if the person you're talking to knows that athlete, then they're like, oh, like, okay, great. Like, I, I want to get to that same point too. Um, but I think your example is great too. Cause you, you know, you're, you're buying your time, you're biding your time, like working with them. And then you show them like, here, here's like what you did, right? Like you didn't do anything as a coach that like really um, got them to that point. They put in the work, you just provided like kind of the map for them. Right. To follow. 
And so that that's I think that's a great example of kind of building the buy-in. So it's going to be different with every athlete. Some of them might just like eat it up right away whenever you talk to them about like, hey, this is what we're going to do, and like this is how we're going to do it. And if you do it authoritatively enough and with enough confidence, they're going to be like, oh yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. This is great. But there are going to be those other athletes that maybe they've trained with other people before. They have certain ideas of like what training should look like, and so those are going to be your tougher cases. And it's like it's definitely context specific, case by case of just like what's making this athlete tick. Why do they think that that you know this is the best way to do it? Why would they be resistant to the way that I want to take them along the, the the path. And so I think just making sure that you kind of get to know them a little bit to, to be able to get, build that buy-in, I think is huge. Um, I think giving them choice is like a really like nice kind of refreshing thing for, for the athlete. Like if they, if they want to hang clean, like, great, like we can, we can do that. Uh, I'm going to give you a choice, uh, but you're not going to get to do it every day, every week. Right. And so you can give them like, choices and like how they're going to, um, certain exercises that they're going to do for that day. And like your strength category, your power, power category, your development category, like all those things. So I think that can help build that buy-in too, but I don't think there's, there's like one like clear way to, to do it. And sometimes you might have fail a few times or stumble a few times with, with an athlete or with a team to kind of uh, get them to change their mind of like, oh no, this is actually going to be worth our time to spend doing something that maybe seems completely unrelated to like what your ultimate goal is. Yeah. And I think that choice part is something that you brought up that we haven't really discussed, but I thought was something that you and I really did kind of a cool, I'm fucking patting ourselves on the back, but like a cool, (laughs) cool thing that I, 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 we didn't see all over the place. And I think the athletes really loved was giving them a choice. You, You do like a back squat or um, squat variation rather than saying back squat, front squat Mm -hmm. and just seeing the different buy-in and intent and just like not dreading it anymore. And it's like, if you, even if the athlete loves front squats and or love back squats, like if you told them to do it, it's like, fuck, it's squat day. You know, you always have the athletes like, fuck, it's squat day. Fuck, it's deadlift day, which is like, yeah, yeah like I was the same. It's like, oh, this is going to suck. But it's like, all right, you get squat variation. You get to pick your torture. Like you end it. <laughs> that little piece, that little switch for them has been something that's like, oh, I, I get the front squat rather than I have to. I, I get the back squat. I get the belt squat. One, and it's really good for the, the injured guys too, because it's not, that's something I found is like you put back squat on the sheet. And it's the injured guy's like, fuck, I got to go bell squat. But mm-hmm. it's like, they're injured. You put squat variation. It's like, okay, I'm going to go bell squat, which is something that I felt was a cool shift. But I, lo- I love that choice because I think it's something that we can definitely expand upon more in the field is it's not, and it's, it's eliminating the ego as a coach. It's not your program. It's, it's not your system. It's mm-hmm. like, it's for the athlete. And a stimulus is a stimulus. I think that's another big point is the squat to me. I mean, it doesn't matter like what squat variation they're going to pick unless they're a power lifter like sure. and they're going to have to master the back squat itself but they're an athlete like let's give them a bilateral stimulus in that sense yeah i think you do a, a great job with that with with the team because it's hard to do that sometimes with a, a, a team of 100 guys and you're just like well i'm going to let them choose you know to, to your example what kind of squat they're going to do today and then and feel confident and comfortable enough and letting them all do that and that they're, they're going to find like a pick the pick the right one for them and find pick the right weight all those kind of things for each one of those very different exercises that's going to get them that response that they want but that's also the trust right we expect our athletes just to trust us to that we're just going to tell them what to do and that they're just going to follow blindly but um, but we don't think about the trust going the other way. Like we need to be able to trust our athletes too, to make the right choices too. Um, and give them that autonomy. So I think that's super important. Like the, the moment you start taking the, when you continue to take away choices and autonomy from an individual, we're not even talking athletes or training right now, but the more you do that and take that stuff away from somebody, then 
the more they're going to feel worthless and less than and not important and burnt out and not want to do whatever it is that they're doing with their lives. And so sometimes for our athletes, it's like everything is being like chosen for them and they're having to, everything's being dictated to them. And so this is an, an opportunity or time for them just to have like some little choice. And it's, they probably don't even, they never think about it that way as my guests. Like they don't think about it explicitly the way we are, which is fine. We don't need them to. But if that helps them just feel a little bit better, have a little bit more buy-in and enjoy their, that, that moment of their day a little bit more, then that's great. That's awesome. And I think that that's not something that we should like turn our nose up at to just be like, well, that athlete's just choosing the belt squat because they don't like back squats. It's like, well, who cares? Yeah. They're not, they're not back squatting out on the soccer field um, or even, you know, rear foot elevated split squatting for that matter. Like whatever the squat is, like who cares? And I love your point about the uh, injured athletes because then you get athletes that, that you're injured athletes that are doing the same exercises sometimes as your healthy athletes, right? Whenever they go to your example to do a belt squat, some of your healthy athletes are going to choose like, oh, I want to do belt squats today because I, I want that like stimulus and that, that different feel to it, right? And they're not even hurt. And then they're doing that with the guys that are hurt that can't do other forms of back squatting or uh, front squatting, or whatever it might be. And so I think that that just creates more of a community with your guys too. And so like whenever you're giving them autonomy and a community feel to it, then they're going to be a little bit happier and enjoy what they're doing a little bit more. Yeah. And I've mentioned this a bunch of times on the podcast. And again, it, it's for sure a bias of mine, but it's like you look at an athlete's day and just an athlete's <laughs> life. And it's like, uh, it, they've, it's always authority figures, especially in college. It's mm -hmm. like they go to class, you call them professor, you call them doctor, you do what they say, you sit quietly, yeah. you go to sport practice, you call them coach, you, you do exactly what's laid out. Like every part of their day is laid out. Every part is calling somebody a title. Every part is like so strict. And then you get them in the weight room and you do, you're calling me coach. You're doing this exercise. You're doing that. And it's like, guys, like, give them, give them the freedom, man. Like, and it's a lot. Of, and to me, a little bit of it's like the detachment of like remembering what it was like to be an athlete, like put yourself in that shoe, like, and it, it too eliminating the ego. It's like, doesn't matter. Like, doesn't matter. No, give them, give them a spot to relax, to be themselves. And that's what I really like about the private sector too, is like, encouraging kids to wear what they want. I think that's super important too, is like, mm -hmm. and you, you inspire that by doing it. You know, I've mentioned this before. It's like, can you wear wacky outfits yourself? Can you be comfortable? Can you wear mismatching socks? Can you do this type of stuff? Can you talk about different things that aren't just strength conditioning and trying to see an athlete develop a personality for the first time, because it's the first time they've, they've been able to like mm -hmm. with somebody and like, and I, I just, to me, it's part of, it's like that ego part. It's like, we can't get, it's like, we want to be the coach. We want to be the doctor. It's like, one, like what have we done as coaches really to earn that, you know, mm -hmm. like to earn somebody to like, you are a master. Like, then that's what we want. We want that authority type feeling. And it's, to me, it's, we got to take that step back and be like, we're here to guide you. We're here with you to navigate this. Like, we don't have it figured out. Nobody in this life has it figured out. Like, let's navigate this together rather than somebody's on a pedestal. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with, you know, all the things you just said there. I think it's important just to like re remind, remind ourselves like, hey, we're, we're working with like teenagers half the time and we're just playing games. Like it's not, it's not that serious. It's not, it's not the end of the world. If uh, we don't hit our PR and do all those things, like we need to take ourselves a little less seriously. We can still take what we're doing seriously. That's fine. But to your point, you know, dressing up and being wacky with the guys and stuff like that. I think that's a great way to connect um, and just doing, just doing different things with them that, um, that you're, you show, you're showing them like, Hey, like 
I trust you. I'm giving you some choice. I can make fun of myself. I can have a good time with you guys. I don't expect, I'm not going to sit over here in the corner with my arms crossed. Or I'm not going to coach every little point of every little exercise that you're doing and just be all over you all the time. Like you're going to be able to get to be a, a person and an individual here and you're going to learn and grow. And I'm going to learn and grow at the same time with you. And the last thing I want to talk about before we get on to the rapid fire rounds is you continually mentioned the, the smiles, the laughter in your warmups. And that was something I loved. Uh, it was, it was very early on when I was here. It's like my only goal is to make sure they laugh during their warm up. Like if I do that, I'm sad. Like I'm yeah. good. Why, why do you value that so much? Is it the physical aspect, the mental aspect that leads to the physical aspect? Is it that long term game that you talk about? Is a combination of both? Like why is that so valuable for you? Well, I think like joy is an important part of like our day. Like if we don't aren't experiencing joy in our day, and uh, we're just kind of going through it because we have to, we have to do the things that we're doing in our day, and we're and we're not uh, enjoying any any part of it or very little of it. Then that's not very fun, and that's not a, that, that's not a place to be working from to like achieve goals that you're setting out for yourself, right? It becomes monotonous, and you're probably not going to be very healthy or happy in in, the, uh, in that example that I just gave. So uh, I think it's important, especially whenever you're starting out with, a, you know, those the 6 a.m. lift, like I said before, like to start your day off, like laughing and enjoying yourself a little bit and not taking yourself too seriously or what we're about to do too seriously. And then I think you're going to operate just from a much better mindset. Like uh, I, I don't need, like I'm sure there's great like research to support that, like on the physical side of things that you're going to, um, you know, maybe run a little faster, jump a little higher, lift a little bit, a little bit more weight. But even if it's all going to be the same, like say like it's not going to make a difference in your performance, but it's all just going to be the same. Like why not choose the one that you're just going to laugh a little bit more and have a little bit more fun. And that's, that's just like my bias of like, I want to enjoy like my job and what I'm doing. I don't want to be the uh, person that's, you know, sitting with his arms crossed and yelling and, you know, getting in people's faces. I'd rather just create an environment where people want to come to work and to enjoy themselves and to, and to compete. And I think that that's like a uh, important part of it. It's like, if we can create some little bit of a competition vibe to whatever it is that we're doing in like a warm up, then they're going to start enjoying themselves. If we're, you know, pre-COVID, uh, you know, being able to let them get in each other's space a little bit more and like trying to like having to touch each other in some physical, like, you know, tag or something like that way. Like then they're going to, they're just going to be a happier team and they're going to enjoy their teammates a little bit more. Um, and they're just going to have be in a positive frame of mind to like start their day off. And even if the rest of their day ends up being kind of what you described as far as like going to class and going to film and going to practice and everything being very, very structured and rigid, at least we're giving them that a little bit of that to kind of start their day. And hopefully that can kind of carry through a little bit through the rest of the day for them. Yeah. And I like that point you mentioned about like you as a coach should probably enjoy your job. You know, like mm -hmm. the burnout rate, I, uh, we had Adam enter on two weeks ago and he's talking about like, Coach Boyle is going to be one of the first coaches to retire a strength coach. You know, like how crazy is that in our field of like you got maybe 10 people that are retiring strength coaches because everybody quits. Everybody burns out. They don't enjoy it. And when you are feeling that, like, what do you think? How do you think your coaching of your athletes is? Maybe you're very stoic and maybe you're able to hold all of that back. But to me, it's like we're all humans. We know in some regard what the other person is kind of feeling. And if you're feeling that type of stuff and you're trying to coach them, like they're feeling that you're putting that energy onto them in the woo woo wee way that that is, but they're feeling that you're putting those emotions onto them. So maybe as you as a coach should enjoy what you're doing and find a way to do that. Well, that's, I really enjoyed, um, I don't know if it was like your most recent episode, but the, with the, uh, um, registered dietitian from the giants, yep, former, yep. formerly with the giants. What's his name? Petit Patel. Okay. Petit. Yeah. He, he was great. Like I enjoyed like hearing his story. Like I'd see, I'd follow, I followed him on Twitter. So I saw some of like his, like his story uh, unfold on there the way he told it. But, um, yeah, he was great. And it kind of explains like, it sounded like to me, like he was getting a lot of, um, autonomy taken away from him. Right. <clears throat> 
And then he uh, just wasn't happy because he was having to sacrifice a lot because of that, because of the, the, the high level that he was working at. He wasn't getting to spend time with his family and all those things. Like those are super important things to me. Like I want to have autonomy in my job um, so that I can choose kind of the way I want to work with my athletes um, and with the teams that I work with. And then I, and I want to be able to like, you know, still have a life like outside of it. Like I still want to be able to spend time with my family. Um, and uh, those things are going to recharge you and like make you want to continue to go back to work. And then, you know, to your point about Boyle, like he's worked with like in, in college settings and like, you know, in pro settings, but the one constant for him has been his own gym where he gets to kind of just call the shots. Right. And so I think that's probably a really important lesson is that like, yeah, you, you can work at these high levels, but most strength coaches probably don't like do it for decades and decades at these high levels and still enjoy doing it. And so like, he's got that like kind of one constant where he's gotten to do his own private gym and do all the great coach education. So that's probably what's like propelled him and kept him going for so long and to enjoy and like continue to evolve and change with the field to a certain degree is that he's has his autonomy and then he's built his own community and then he can have like a work-life balance through all that yeah and, and that's where i love their stories because it's not like the disgruntled division three coach that is making 40k it's like yeah. i mean coach patel he posted okay. online it was two hundred fifty four thousand dollars he was nice. making a year you know like yeah. that that to me that really opens it up it's like that is the peak that is winning the game that is doing everything that everybody talks about and you still like you find out it's not the answer so mm-hmm. i mean that's the whole point of talking to humans is like you you can see that and you're like all right i don't have to go down that pathway because he's already told me and it's different for each person obviously and that but it's like you saw that pathway you understand that he basically won the game in quotations and it wasn't what he wanted so it's not just it's not just the pay. It's not just that, but it, it's the other aspects that you talked about. Mm-hmm. And before we end this podcast, I want to hit you with two rapid fire questions. And one of them, and this is one I like asking you because I get most of my books from you. But what are your favorite books? What are some favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? Um, so I'll give you uh, quite a few here. My, some of my favorite books. Um, we'll do more like on the development side of things first <clears throat> range by David Epstein, I think is a super good book that if you haven't read or heard of, I think it's great. It applies to a lot of what we just talked about today. Uh, mindset by Carol Dweck. Like those are, uh, that was a great one for me as far as, um, continuing my education and kind of learning that like, Oh, I can just cause I maybe I'm quote unquote bad at something that doesn't mean I have to stay bad at it. Like I can get better and like learn and get out of this like fixed mindset, which I had a lot of, um, growing up thinking fast and slow by, uh, Daniel Kahneman super dense book took me a really long time to read it probably didn't understand most of it but uh it really helped my thinking and to question a lot of my biases and assumptions um in life and and training as well um anything by michael lewis i think is great he uh author of like the blind side Moneyball, um and he writes a lot about finance uh world and so he's he's really great um the rise of theodore roosevelt it's also another great book. That's actually a first in like a trilogy of a biography um, that Edmund Morris wrote about him. And so the the that that's the first one, and that it just tells like his upbringing and just like kind of like how he overcame like a lot of like uh, physical ailments and um, maybe not being like set up for the the most success, especially physically. But then he went on to achieve obviously a lot of great things. But so the book kind of starts. Um, from his uh, youth and goes all the way up to like right before he becomes president, which is uh, a really good book. And then currently I'm reading right now are like two really long books. Uh, War and Peace is one of them. Are you reading War and Peace? <laughs> yes. And it's, so that was just like more of a challenge. That's probably like an ego read just for me to be able to say like, oh, I read War and Peace. And this is like 1300 page book that is super With dense. this tiny words. Yeah. 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 So uh, so I've been enjoying that. It's um, just to expand, like it actually the what made me want to read it or like think I could read it, I guess I should say, is that there's like 300. 60 chapters in it but each chapter is only like 
three, four pages long. So you could just read a chapter a day, yep. which is kind of how I've been going through it, um, more or less. And so that's been enjoyable to kind of challenge myself from that part. And then I've just been trying to read a little bit more on history. And so I've been reading uh, George Washington biography called Washington, A Life by Ron Chernow. He's the guy that wrote um, Alexander Hamilton biography that they based like the play was based off of Hamilton. And so he's a really good writer. And so um, uh, currently reading that one right now. And that's a really good one as well. So that, that chapter thing, that's something I've been thinking about a lot, actually, is like we talk about gamifying training. And I'm not saying you should have to gamify reading. But if you're writing books, to me, if you chap, like make short chapters, I feel like that's the number one way to get your book read fast. Because people consistently go back to, mm-hmm. I can finish a chapter. I can finish a chapter. It's just something I've been thinking about. Yeah, it's so easy to just be like, all right, I can take like the 10, 15 minutes to, to read this really quick. Where like to your point, if it's like if it's like a 50-page chapter, you're like, well, now I got to sit here. Fuck. And I'm a super slow reader. So then I'm like, now I got to sit here for like an hour just to get through a chapter. And then that can feel kind of defeating to do that. And then the last question of the podcast. <clears throat> And this when all the coaching and all the athletic training stuff is over, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be? Um, so I think about that from probably like two different perspectives, um, like from my personal life. Like I just want to like my, my kids to think that like I'm a good dad and um, that they enjoyed, you know, being around me and like thought that I did a good job raising them and like a good husband to my wife. So like those two things are like super important to me, mainly because like I didn't have that in my life growing up. And so I think that that for, for like the personal side of thing, the family side of thing, like that's what I want my legacy to be. And that's like more important than anything else is that I just want them to think that I, I was a good, good dad, good husband, good person. Um, on the strength and conditioning, athletic training side of things. Um, I don't know. Like I, I kind of think like I, that's not something I can control a ton, but I, I would hope that like my athletes and like coworkers would think that like, that I, I care about like the work that I do. I care about the people that I'm working with. Um, I think that that's something that doesn't always get talked about, but like, I really like, you know, if, if an athlete's going to gets hurt and comes into work with me, like I care about them and I want to make sure that they have like good outcomes and can get back to their sport. If I'm working from a training side of things, like I care about their success and like them as a person, um, not just like success, like in the sport, but just like being them being like happy and fulfilled. And I think that, uh, that would be a, a nice way to be remembered is that like, Hey, like Stu just like cares about you and he's going to take care of you and work with you. And you do that by making them front squat Bulgarians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I told Ben that you're coming on and he's like, Make sure you bring that part up. So, <laughs> Coach, thanks for being on. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Boom. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.